All right, everybody, I have 12.30, so we are gonna get started. We always wanna honor everybody's time. <clears throat> we also wanna honor the hands that help us here every week. So remember, if you enjoy the food and you love the fact that it's free and they do this, um, uh, tip accordingly. I don't get any of it. It all goes to the ladies in the back who give us something to eat every week. <clears throat> that's right, that's right. I've tried to, I can't get away with it. I just, he catches me every time. No, but we just wanna show them, that's a tangible way to show your appreciation. But we are picking back up in Deuteronomy. We looked at last week sort of an overview and introduction of the book. And today we're going to look at the first part of chapter 1. And the, first, the couple of chapters in Deuteronomy that start off are pretty long, so we may not do a whole chapter each week, but that's okay. Because chapters were invented way, way, way later. Um, I mentioned last week that Deuteronomy is in the world of the ancient Near East. And this is important. And those of you that have been here for you know, four or five years now, you're fairly familiar with this world because we've been in it, uh, especially if you were here for the Exodus study. We were very much in this time period. And in the time period that Deuteronomy is written, give or take, uh, around the 1400s B.C. to the 1200s B.C., somewhere in there. And different people have different dates. And when it comes to dating things in the Bible, so always take this with, always um, hold with loose hands dates and places in the Bible. Because sometimes the dates are harder to identify and the places are even harder to identify. Especially places in the Torah, in the first five books. Because Israel, were, they did not, people say, well, there's no evidence of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Well, they were, they were tent dwellers. They were nomads. I mean, they didn't build buildings in this area. Uh, they traveled, and they traveled a lot. So that's one of the things to realize, places that they stopped at, names of places, specific mountains. You know, it's a big business in, the, in places where there's history to tell people, this is the spot where this thing happened, even though it's not. And if you go 10 miles that way, there's another guy telling you, this is the spot where that thing happened. And so we always want to be aware of it. However, that doesn't mean that Deuteronomy is not, or, or the books of Scripture aren't historical. They're, they're very historical. They're just, we don't have all the historical details. Some of the clues to where some of these places are may still be in the ground, literally. Um, but that's okay because none of that prevents us from seeing the purpose and the whole point of the passage. And in Deuteronomy in particular, <coughs> we have some clues to when it was compiled and, and the world or what was going on because the whole book is outlined in much the same way that specific treaty formats were outlined in that time period. During this particular time period, 1400s to 1200s BC, in that area, there was a particular type of treaty. And the treaty, you know, you make an agreement with a neighboring person. And there is a Hittite suzerainty treaty. Uh, and basically that's just a fancy way of saying it's how the Hittites and peoples in that area made agreements with kings and allies. And the treaty had a particular format, and it had these specific parts. And lo and behold, Deuteronomy actually has all of those parts in much the same order, and it matches with that type of writing. That's the genre that Deuteronomy is. Yes, it's sermons. Yes, it's discourses on the law, but it's also compiled at the macro level as the ancient treaty between the suzerain, and the suzerain is the word for king, and the vassal, 
The vassal is the one for who serves the king. Deuteronomy is Israel's covenant with God. That's why it's part of why it's, you know, we say the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. Deuteronomy is a covenant document. So what's a covenant? It's a binding agreement. And the way that these type of covenants, second uh, millennium BC suzerainty covenants worked was you would have a king or a great leader or a great superpower and he did something for a lesser, either rescued them or said, I'm going to protect you from other enemies or whatever. And as a result, then they would enter into a covenant and a document would actually be written up and the document would have specific parts. It would start with a preamble and the preamble would just introduce the parties involved. And then after the preamble, there would be the stipulations or excuse me, there'd be the historical prologue. The historical prologue would tell the events that led up to the making of this treaty. So, you know, in the year so-and-so, the armies of such-and-such came against us, and the great king so-and-so came and defeated those armies and liberated us, da-da-da-da. So it tells the, the setting. Then after that would come the stipulations of the agreement. So because of that, this is what we will do. We will give the king so-and-so a tenth or a twentieth or whatever of our resources. We will give this many livestock. We will pay homage to their gods. We will build this temple in our city. We will, this is the stuff we'll do. And in return, this is the stuff the great king will do. So there were the stipulations, the kind of the body of the contract, so to speak. And within that, there were some subsets um, under these demands, but part of it was um, there was even a, a call of witnesses. Like, okay, these are the witnesses to this agreement. And they would be listed. And sometimes the witnesses were the people that were there. Sometimes it was the leader. Sometimes it was the gods who were called to witness. And after the witnesses, then there would be a, a, a clause in the covenant, in the treaty, that said two copies of this will be made. One will be put in the temple of the God of the great king. One will be put in the temple of our God here so that both sides know the covenant. And periodically this document will be brought out and it will be read publicly so that both parties know their obligations. And that was then a way of making sure that everybody was on board because these were national agreements. And again, there are dozens of these from this time period in this part of the world. So we know that this is a type of writing. And then after that, there would be any like concluding, if there was a concluding, uh, you know, account or whatever the you know sacrificial meal or a ceremony usually involving some type of meal together or something but these were the this is kind of the way it worked in the ancient near east and what it meant was we the vassal are putting ourselves under the authority of this suzerain this king and we will be his loyal subjects and if we break our end of this bargain if we break our stipulations then, well, there were two things. In the stipulations, there was promises of blessing if you fulfill your part. So the king would say, if you remain faithful to me, I will lavish you with gifts. I'll make sure your, you know, your, your towns are protected and you have enough food in your storehouses and all of this stuff. So that was part of it. Then, and this was particular to this type of covenant, there were massive curses that were pronounced if you break the covenant. And they were horrendous. They were, they were, it was intended to literally scare the people to death 
and make them never want to break their promises and break this covenant. So it's kind of like in contracts today when you sign, it's like I'll sue you and your children and their children in perpetuity if you break this non-disclosure agreement or whatever. It's kind of like that. It was put into the covenant. If you break this, the gods will rain down fire from heaven on you and your pestilence will devour your cities and you're, you'll, you're, you know, you'll be so starving that you'll even eat your own children because there's nothing left to eat because you'll resort to cannibalism because you're so desperate. I mean, horrible, horrible, horrible things to get them to see the importance of this covenant. Now, this is all in the ancient world. Well, Deuteronomy has all of that. All of that, even down to the eating your children part in the later chapters. So it is set up as this type of treaty. And what that's communicating to Israel and what it communicates to us is that God was saying, look, you've served Pharaoh. He was a harsh overlord. And you're entering into this world that I'm bringing you into the land, surrounded by all these nations that are used to serving each other and doing this whole, like, you know, I'm your overlord and you'll serve me. And God's saying, here's the deal. You're not to serve anybody else except me because I am the only one in all of creation who's worth serving and who legitimately has a right to claim such authority. And if you do serve me, then I am the source of all blessings so you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. But if you break this covenant, if you rebel against me and serve these other gods, which Israel is going to do, then know that there's nothing worse you can do in the world than that because you're rebelling against the one who is greater than any king, greater than any army, greater than any natural disaster. And so he's, he's using, again, we see God doing this all throughout Scripture. He's using a cultural vehicle, a known type of writing in this case, to convey a deeper spiritual truth. We saw it in Genesis, how he used the creation epics of the ancient cultures around Israel and said, now here's the real version. Let me tell you, but using these tropes and these concepts that you can understand, let me tell you the real secret or the real truth behind creation and all of this stuff. Well, now he's doing it again. He'll do it again throughout, 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 uh, even up until Paul. You know, he goes in and he'll look at a temple and say, oh, that's the temple to the unknown God. Let me show you the real version of this God. And he does that at Mars Hill. So God's always doing that. He's always hijacking culture in order to convey a deeper meaning to the thing that the culture was trying, grasping at in the first place. And so that's what we see in Deuteronomy with this suzerainty covenant. So the preamble, the the counterpart to the preamble of a suzerainty covenant is verses 1 through 5. And what we see is, These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is, in the Arabah, opposite of Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edri had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, and then that's where the next part, the historical prologue, is going to start. But this first part, the preamble, there's a lot packed into this. These are the words, Ele Hadabarim, that's the name of this book in Hebrew, or sometimes just Dabarim, which is, just means words. These are the words that Moses spoke. This picks right up where Numbers 31 left off. I mean, exactly where it left off. 
And so there's, just like Leviticus did, picked up exactly where Exodus left off. We have that here again. It follows seamlessly. <clears throat> they're, they're on the verge. They're looking into the promised land. They're about to cross over like we saw last year in Numbers. They're getting ready. Everything's set. And then it's like Moses pauses. They're, they're, they're on the plains of Moab. They're overlooking this area. The Arabah is, if you know geography, the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley. It goes from the Sea of Galilee. It's like a big scar that cuts all the way down the earth, all the way down into Africa, down to uh, Kenya. Uh, the Nile River, all that stuff, it just, it's like this gash in the earth. Well, that valley that runs, that's in, in the area of the Holy Land, that's the Arabah. And then past that, you would have the hill country. And then past that, you would have the Shephelah, which is like this lowlands. And then after that would be the coastal plain. And then the Mediterranean Sea. So they're looking this way into the Holy Land from the east. And they're right there on that spot, and he gives some place names, and some of these place names only appear this time, this one spot in the Bible, so we don't know where they are. Like Dizahav means place of gold, but we, we don't know where that is. Um, Tophel, there's a guess that may be this place, but again, we don't know. But they did at the time. This made sense. It located it in history. It located it in geography, because unlike other ancient Near East ritual or other ancient Near East myths, that never placed their figures in the world at, in time, Scripture does. Like even today when you go to India, you can, you can hear the, the stories of the Hindu gods and, and they have this massively developed pantheon, you know, 330 million gods in Hinduism, and these epics that, that tell all of these stories, you know, Krishna and, and Shiva and all of these deities or these beings or these stories. But when you ask, like, well, well when did this happen and where did it happen? It's kind of like, well, it, it just happened. You know, there's not a really a when and a where. Or think of the Greek gods or the Roman gods. It was that way as well. You know, when did it happen? Well, it, 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 it always happens because it's, a, it's part of our mythos. Um, you know, all of the ancient Near East cultures that way, the Babylonian view, the Egyptians, all of that, and they never rooted their deity in a particular time and place. And that's the one thing that sets the Hebrew Bible apart from all of its and all of the competing claims of that day, especially, is that it roots it in a particular place, in a particular time. It gives it down to the, you know, um, gives it down to the, yeah, the first day of the 11th month, in verse 3. Um, verse 2 is a very interesting note. It says it takes 11 days to go from Horeb. That's Mount Sinai was in the area of Horeb. So Horeb and Sinai are kind of synonymous. But to get from Mount Sinai, where Israel got the law, to Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the verge of the Holy Land, where they could have gone up and taken the land, it's 11 days. So an 11-day journey to get from northwest Saudi Arabia or down in the Sinai Peninsula, depending on where you think Mount Sinai is, to get to the Holy Land. 11 days. That, that was the, that's how long it should have taken them after God kept them at Mount Sinai for a year, gave them the law, prepared them, and then in Numbers chapter 10, said, let's move. And they moved. And then it says, in the 40th year, on the first day. So 38 years, 11-day journey, it took 38 years. That's a, that's a key emphasis in this passage, which is built into the preamble of this covenant. Is there's a reason that you're still here and your parents are all dead, because they rebelled against me. You should have, you should be in the, you should have been born in the land. This is, remember, he's talking to the second generation. They should have been born in the land and already tending the crops and the produce and everything 
for a generation now. Instead, they've been dwelling in the desert. So this was uh, verse 4, and he reminds them, you know, this is after uh, these defeats of King Sian and King Og had taken place, after these victories. There's a reminder of the past, and God's going to do this all throughout Scripture, but it's particularly important in this covenant. He reminds them of the past to show him his character so that they will look to the future with that knowledge of the past undergirding the need for faith. Because he's asked, they're about to go into the promised land, and they're not just moving. Like we, you know, it's not like, okay, we've got the U-Haul, we've made all the arrangements, I've cut the cable there, and I've got it here, we're ready to go. It's not that. They have to fight. They have to go in and take this land from very powerful people. And so right at the beginning of this, and remember, this is a generation of people who were born to slavery. They were, their parents were a rabble of slaves that were in Egypt for 400 years. This is just one generation removed. They're expected to go in and fight some of these incredibly intimidating peoples and occupy the land. So that's a major, I mean, we don't, sometimes you know, we look back in hindsight at this because we know the story, but just imagine that. I mean, imagine, I don't even, it's hard to think of like a parallel for it, but it would kind of like imagine in the 1800s after the Emancipation Proclamation that, that there was an order given and it said, okay, all of the slaves in America, now that you're free, there's a part of the out west and, and you know, you're going to go and you're going to occupy it. Oh, but there's a really strong army there and you're going to have to win and you're going to have to beat them and then you're going to have to set up your own country. And da, da, da. I mean, it's, it's a daunting thing. You're like, wait a minute, we've, all we've known is slavery. And, and now this is what, yeah, that's, that's what God's doing. So it's, we, we don't need to mitigate or, or minimize the, the act of faith that God was calling them to. However, we also need to keep in mind that he had gone out of his way to demonstrate the validity of what he was calling them to do. He didn't just say, go do this. He said, go do this. By the way, let me destroy the largest army in the world at the time, supernaturally for you. Let me literally let you walk through the sea and then let me provide food for you in the wilderness for 40 years. And then let me destroy, go before you as you fight, and you destroy these two kings who ruled this area called the Transjordan. You know, God, it's not like God was just asking them to do stuff and that's it, and they had to just take it on faith. No, they had to have faith, and it was monumental, but he was backing them at every step of the way. And they rebelled at every step of the way, which is why we're here. So, east of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to literally, NIV says expound this law, but literally to, to explain this Torah or, or to, to make clear this teaching. And that's the purpose of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a little bit of a misnomer. The name Deutero and Namas, second law, it's not like this is just the second law. Like we already have Exodus. Deuteronomy is not just, okay, this is the law 2.0. It's, no, I'm going to explain the law that you've already been given, and along the way there will be some, um, some adaptations of it, because now this is new circumstances. And there are going to be future adaptations when you get into the land, because then you'll move from being um, uh, nomadic to being sedentary, and that will require some changes as well. So God's, God's expounding, Moses, or excuse me, Moses is expounding and explaining and clarifying God's law for the people in Deuteronomy. So verse 6 then starts what in the 
Hittite treaty would be the historical prologue. This is now, this will go all the way through like the next couple of chapters. And the historical prologue is going to give the background. It's going to say, this is how we got here. This is why this covenant is being made. The whole point of Deuteronomy is to have a covenant ratification ceremony that will take place at the end of the book where all of Israel agrees and all of Israel, this new generation, actually ratifies the covenant. And there's a, there's a specific ceremony that's done. And there's a mountains this, the, they, they stand on and they represent the witnesses to this covenant. It's like God saying even heaven and earth are call, calling them as witnesses to this agreement you're making today before you enter into the land. So all of Deuteronomy is headed towards this ceremony that Israel's going to do, which says we take it all on our backs. We accept this covenant. And then Moses can die in peace. And Joshua then can lead them into the land committed to this agreement. So always keep that in mind in Deuteronomy. That's where we're headed. And when it starts to bog you down a little bit in the details, just remember the details are there because this is a covenant ceremony for a nation. And Moses is expounding and explaining what it means to follow Torah. What it means, and when it says law, that's the word Torah. And, it, and Torah means instruction. It comes from the word that means to point. The verb yara means to point out or to point up. And Torah does both. It points up to God who gave it, and it points out to how you should live, how you should walk. So a lot of, um, one helpful way to think of it is when you ever see the word law in this, think of it as teaching or instruction. And instruction might even be better because it's kind of formal, but it also has this mindset of like, this is teaching us how to live, not just saying, here's the law, break it and you die. Right? So it's, it's, it's a formative thing. So the historical prologue starts. It says, the Lord God said to us at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah and the mountains and the western foothills and the Negev and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh swore he would give your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants after them. So this is the commission. This is hearkening back to Genesis 15. All the way back in Genesis 15, years ago, if you've been here with us, God promised to Abraham, I am going to bring your descendants out of slavery. And by the time I do that, the sin of the Amorites will have reached its full measure. And your descendants are who I will use to judge these particular people groups. The, the, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites. It, it lists them out in Genesis 15. And then God makes this covenant with Abram and says, and here's the borders. Go out and look. Look at the land. This is the land I'm going to give you from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates to the sea. Like he says, so these are the Abrahamic promise uh, condition or, or the object of the Abrahamic promise. Moses in this covenant, in this preamble is rooting it, not in Exodus. It didn't start in Exodus. It started back in Genesis 15. It started back even before that in Genesis 12. The whole point of God calling Abram at the very beginning of the Bible Proper, the Bible proper, meaning after, the pre, uh, the, the, after Genesis 1-11 through 11, to get us to the point, the main part of the Bible begins, Genesis 12, Abram and his call, and his calling was that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so now, they've reached that point where this is coming to fruition. They're entering his seed, 
the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, are entering into that land that God promised Abraham. And in doing that, the purpose will be to set them up as God's covenant people so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The law, Israel's Torah, can never be separated from Israel's mission. Israel's mission is the reason God gave the Torah. So we always have to keep that in mind. And the mission is to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and restore, bridge that gap that was entered when the nations turned, when, when, when sin spiraled out of control in Genesis and, and there was this separation between man and God. So then, um, verse 8, see, this is a great little insight and this may be all we can get to this week. Verse 8, I love it, it says, See, I have given you this land in the NIV. Other translations say, See, I have put before you, I have placed before you, I have set before you. You know, give, set, put, place. It's all kind of the same concept. It's like God saying, like, here, I'm setting this before you. I've put this before you. I've given you this land. Next sentence, go in and take possession of the land. He's already given it to him. Why does it? Here's where we see that beautiful truth that God's grace, it doesn't say, see, you've earned this land. It's a grace, it's a gift. See, I've given you this land. But in order to dwell in that land, in order to receive the promise, you have to go take possession of it. So there's a call to obedience. It's not an either or. It's not like Israel earned the land. Through their, Israel can fight these battles and win and they can still never claim we earned this land. No, it was given to them by God. But just because it was given doesn't mean that Israel then doesn't have anything to do. No, it's this both and. Sovereign gift of grace. Freely given obedience in order to receive the promise of grace. And it's the same way with the Christian life. You know, the whole predestination, free will, election, you know, all this stuff. It's, 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 it's an exercise in unimportance. What Scripture says is, yes, I've elected you. Yes, you are going to take the land. I've given you the land. I've brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. Remember Exodus, that's where the whole term saved comes from. And you are my elect. That's where the whole term elect comes from, from the Old Testament. Remember, Exodus is the paradigm for salvation. I've already done it, but in order to appropriate for yourself the blessings that I've secured for you, you've got to walk in obedience. And Israel, the first generation, didn't. And so they died in the desert. They rejected the grace that was freely given them, and they died without receiving it. But God is still going to be God, and His promises are still going to come true, and the elect still will be saved and are being saved and have been saved in all senses. The next generation will be the ones who enter the land. So God's promises stand. His election is sure. But whether any individual Israelite generation participates in that or not is based on their obedience. So it's this both-and tension that makes people that really like their systematic theology nice and neat it, it, it shakes it up a little bit and says, easy now. There's two truths here. Don't let go of either one of them. Gift of grace, requiring obedience. They both stand. And so that's what God's done. And then he goes on the last part. He says, at that time I said to you, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. Moses is talking to the people. 
The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. That directly goes back to Genesis 15. That's, all, that's a quote. That's the promise God said to Abram. Look up at, go outside and look at the stars. If you can count the stars, that's what I'm going to make your descendants. Moses is saying that has already been fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled even more because he goes on to say, May the Lord God of your fathers increase you a thousand times and bless you as He promised. So in other words, it's fulfilled and may it continue to be fulfilled even greater, even more. So Moses isn't complaining that they've become too numerous. He's just saying, you've grown. God has blessed Abram's offspring. We're here today, but you're too much for just me. How can I, verse 12, but how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men or the heads of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and as tribal officials. Those are military ranks, not numbers. Uh, those terms, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, those are terms for military units, uh, not literally 1,000, literally 100, literally 50. Um, we talked about that in the numbers study if you missed it. So, uh, of tribal officials, and I charge your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien or a stranger. The Hebrew word is ger. It's somebody who's come into the community from another country and who does not have roots there. We would say immigrant. Do not show partiality in judgment. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I'll hear it. And at the time I told you everything you were to do. So, what Moses is admitting in this is a couple of things, and we'll pick this up next week because there's some more principles just in that section that are worth emphasizing, but we're out of time. What he's saying is, God's grown this thing, and it's actually outgrown me, so I need to delegate. And a good leader delegates. Moses is not a micromanager. He says, I need to delegate. So here's what you're going to do, though. I'm not going to impose it top down. You choose from yourselves people that you would be comfortable being led by. People who have wisdom, people who have knowledge, and people who are respected. The literal term for that is known. People who are experienced, known, respected. All of the different translations translate it differently. But basically, it's all about character. Choose people of character to lead you. We could use that, especially in a democracy. <laughs> that should always be in our minds. And appoint it, and they will be over, and then that's how God will lead. It will be this delegated thing, this organizational thing. So there's, there's tons of leadership lessons just in this one section. Um, we'll look at maybe one or two more next week before it moves into it. But the, again, the point of all this, Moses is teaching Israel how to love God who has already loved them in a way that, that, that will bring about the blessings that God has promised and is wanting to give His people. And the only thing that can stop it for them is their disobedience. And that's the challenge that He's going to put before them. But we are out of time. We've got to run. We'll be back next week. We'll pick up. We're going to continue in this historical prologue because it stretches for about three or four chapters. And so we'll be in it for the next probably three or four weeks. Um, but I hope... Deuteronomy starts to be more than just the book that you think is, has a funny name that you don't want to 
read when you're doing your devotionals because it is an amazing book. It's the Gospel of Moses, and we'll pick it up next week. You guys have a great week.